Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, everybody. You're listening to Living the Dream, and you are joined by me, Dave, and John. John, how's things? Uh, pretty good, Dave. How are you? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It is. I feel like I don't... I did a... Uh, uh, earlier this week, I, I did like a Zoom meeting with mainly some comrades based in Melbourne to talk about 20 years after the S11 demonstrations, mm. and it was pretty interesting... Obviously, they're having a very different experience than we are in Queensland, which was quite sobering. And then on the weekend, um, before that, I'd gone down to Burley to see my folks. And, you know, you really felt that there was no pandemic happening. Even the, the businesses that had shut down at the start of the, the uh, pandemic had been replaced by equally shiny businesses. So the, I'm really getting a sense of the geographical disparity even within Australia of both COVID and the COVID-19 recession I guess yeah yeah I imagine it yeah it is it is really weird isn't it yeah like it's a very um uneven very uneven crisis like mm. in terms of kind of the university sector where I'm kind of work like obviously there's sort of a, a generally kind of unfolding disaster um but even that is unevenly distributed depending on kind of how exposed your university was to the international student market. That's really interesting. So like, yeah, my uni, Australian Catholic uni had pretty limited exposure. So as such, we are not been asked to make too many, if any sacrifices so far. Well, others are obviously. It's a bloodbath elsewhere, right? Thousands of jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of, um, you know, very uneven, um, uneven crisis. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of ways. Yeah. Wild. And we're about to see no changes to job keeper and job seeker. Mm. Um, which will have massive impact. You know, I haven't had a close look today, but uh, what was the date? The 24th, 25th of September? No, the 25th today, yeah. 25th. So we're recording this almost two months later than we said we were going to record it, which for Living the Dream is right on schedule. But I was just you know, surveying the news today. It seems like the government's strategy is to uh, lower um, lending restrictions on banks. So a kind of, you know, to compensate for the state pulling back, trying to stimulate more private Keynesianism people to take on more debt to um, push up, you know, aggregate demand um, as the recession kind of unfolds. So it's, I feel things are very much still in motion. But John, this is, we're finally together uh, today to do, I guess, the first proper episode of our series, um, which I have cheekily called, was it, uh, uh, Living the Dream After White Australia, our attempt to uh, think about the white Australia policy and racism in Australia and racism after the white Australia policy by reading three texts that we think represent different moments in radical thought in Australian history. And we're starting today with our first, A New Britannia by Humphrey McQueen. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be an interesting uh, excursion. So the first thing that really struck me is that I suddenly realised, I guess, what we're doing in some ways is intellectual history. You know, mm. that, that we're, we're looking, we're, we're thinking about thinking, right? And we're, we're, yeah. we're looking at how there's been an unfolding of an approach. And it is interesting that this is the 50th, 50th anniversary of New Britannia. Is that correct? It is. It is yes. yes and, it was published in 1970. And the book is out of print. Yeah. Almost impossible to get a copy of. Yeah. Uh, like really, you know, we were contacted by listeners going, well, where can I get a copy? And even the standard secondhand um, copies, um, mm. you know, the places that sell secondhand books, you can't get a copy of it. And there's almost nothing. I'm unaware of anything happening around the 50th anniversary of this book. Yeah. It, it was an important book at the time, right? It was a very important book at the time. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of, I think it's unforgivable and I've expressed this, that, that, yeah, whoever owns it, whether it is Penguin or whether it is UQP, um, it's both not published it's, editions. It's not. It's the rights have gone back to Humphrey McQueen. Rights have gone back to Humphrey. Yeah, yeah. well, no one seems interested in publishing a 50th anniversary. It is remarkable. And the, the yeah. other thing, particularly, and I think we'll get into this, is that it's a very interesting book where um, 
you know, there's the 970s version, 70 version of it, then reprints, then an 86 in 2004. And yep. there's an afterword, and I'm not sure. I've got the 986 version, and the afterword is in that. I don't know if it's different from the 2004 version, but it basically gives a radically different explanation of the phenomena and a critique of the previous part of the book. So you would really want like a, you know, a definitive scholarly edition of the work that you get McQueen's full argument, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you do want a sense of that, I'll link to, um, I can just, if you can't access it for free, which I'm pretty sure you should be able to, I'll make, I'll make sure you can. Franklin Jono's article uh, from the Journal of Australian Colonial History uh, called Two Radical Legends, which is a, okay. an amazing term. Russell Ward, Humphrey McQueen and the New Left Challenge to Australian Historiography really does do a good job of kind of explaining um, the context of McQueen's writing and then yeah. kind of the response to it. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll link to that um, in case people are, are wanting to read it because it's good yeah, great. sort of... Um, we will talk about it obviously today as well. Yeah. So. I thought what we would do is probably... Um, you know, present the argument in the book and then present McQueen's critique of it and give a bit of what we think about it, if that makes sense. Um, But the starting point you've already mentioned is that this book emerges as a critique of an already existing radical understanding of Australian history and Australian radicalism and Australian nationalism. Like McQueen um, identifies that this book is very, like in, in his 86 introduction, identifies that this book was really a product of the time. I think there's a fantastic quote. I'll sit, look, I've got the text in front of me. I'm mm. going to see if I can find it. It's, oh, it's brilliant. Who, um, the previous person who owned this has drawn a little box around this in, in, mm. uh, in lead. So a new Britannia deserves to be read as a statement of its time, the late 1960s, when the mood was established by the great proletarian cultural revolution in China, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the May Days in France, the Prague Spring and the O'Shea Strike. And later on in some of his other writings, I've seen that he explains the origin of this uh, book actually came out of a pamphlet about which, if socialists Mm. should join the Labor Party. Yep. Yeah, it was from 1967, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And the critique, and it starts by a critique of Russell Ward's argument. Are you familiar with Russell Ward's argument that McQueen sets up to knock down? Oh, yeah, I mean, enough to, you know, have kind of written a bit about it. But, yeah, I mean, look, so Ward um, is in many ways kind of an inheritor of a longer sort of old left radical tradition, you could say. So he is really kind of the first person who popularises a understanding of Australian kind of nationhood was born in the 1890s around um, the strike wave of that era, as well as kind of the um, bohemian kind of Bushman movement and the Bush poets. And his argument is really that there's a tradition, um, a uh, which kind of extends back to the convicts of radicalism. And that that radicalism um, was kind of quintessentially Australian in some of its mannerisms, in terms of how it presented itself as um, kind of egalitarian, based on concepts of mateship and based on the kind of incipient sort of socialism. Um, and that that was really from that convict period through to the Labour Party. You can see uh, the Labour Party as like a holder and custodian and continuation of a radical tradition that started in, with the convicts and um, kind of to that day, although Ward was quite, I think, critical of the Labour Party as it existed at that time, and later on, the Communist Party, um, which Ward was briefly a member of, um, it becomes kind of the custodian of a radical of that radical nationalism, or at least wants to be through um, kind of popular front work in the 30s, um, and really um, like it's kind of cultural products, like a radical theatre and uh, republishing radical poets, and really trying to. Um, argue for a sort of um, Australian radical tradition which was associated Mm. with the left and which the Communist Party was the inheritor of. So that's kind of Ward's argument and and that's his basic. So without any critique, that's that's kind of the argument that he makes. So is this this saying that, you know, the experience of convicthood, then the bush 
then mm. um, Barkledyne and the strike mm. wave of the late 1890s, the Eureka Stockade, this mm. kind of reflect Henry, Henry Lawson's poetry, mm. this reflects a kind of inherent um, egalitarian tendency in the Australian character that finds its expression in a kind of laborist socialism. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's his, what he's really doing is he's attempting to draw on and to utilize all of Australian history and to make an argument about how that history coincides or um, sort of um, culminates in okay. the labor, in the labor party as it stands. And, so in Ward's work, mm-hmm. is there any sense of trying to address um, positively or negatively the white Australia policy or the treatment of indigenous people? Yeah, it's 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 in there to a degree. There is there is he does talk about race. He does talk about um, indigenous indigenous people. But I mean, in general, I think not just Ward, but the rest of that coterie of kind of what you could call old left historians. So people like Brian Fitzpatrick, uh, Ian Turner, and whatnot would see racism as almost like incidental. Like there's a quote. Um, from the introduction, which I might just look at the page, the chapter called Historians, I think it's in, where um, he says that, oh, I've lost it now, but um, basically that it was inevitable and that laborism um, was that it was inevitable effectively that, labor, that, that, that racism would develop because of the circumstances and because of the context in which um, laborism emerged. This sort of racism was not, it was not part of the core, um, McQueen puts it, it wasn't part of the core of the Australian um, radical tradition for those earlier historians, that it was mm. something that kind of emerged spontaneously out of their context. and. Sort of was like an unfortunate like hanger on, but not really associated. Yeah, okay. So interesting. Yeah. And this is seen as separate things. Also in the setup in that chapter, Historians, which is a great chapter because um, McQueen then proceeds to give a one sentence summary of the rest of the book. <laughs> you know, and I, cheat, I, cheat. I, I've got a, I'm not sure if it's from 2004, if it's a more recent piece of McQueen's writing where he reflects mm. on the um, development of a new Britannia. And uh, apparently, I think when it was being commissioned, there's some line where, they, where the publisher's like, look, you know, this should be a, um, a, a history book for fourth forms that don't like history. Mm. You know, and I, th- I like how that McQueen, who I, at the time I think was a history teacher or had yeah. experienced time as a history teacher, is really giving you the cheat sheet at the beginning. But he also makes um, the argument for that this branch of historians, since they associated this radicalism with a particularly, I guess, 19th century experience, were mm. kind of bemoaning that the development of modernity mm. was seeing its end. And with that, a kind of closing down of the socialist potentials of that bush radical tradition well very Mm. much mcqueen's argument particularly in the 1970s version is actually to flip it to say that the material conditions of the 19th century were not ones that allowed a a socialist or um proletarian um potential to develop but rather it was only something in the 20th century that was taking form and we can dig into that argument a bit later so so uh Quite controversial then. So it was Ward, I guess, the established narrative of the Australian left that McQueen uh, takes an attack at? Yeah, it was. And I think it was very much the tradition, not just of the left, but of kind of the historical profession in Australia at the time, because um, Ward was one of the eminent, he was the first, I think, ever Australian historian to actually be trained in Australia, to get his Mm. PhD in Australia, which is almost unheard of in the 1950s. He just didn't do that. Mm -hmm. He went overseas. So that was kind of a a point of his radical sort of nationalism in and of itself. Was to get a Um, PhD in Australia. Yeah, he was the first um, to get get a PhD at ANU, I believe. Um, So he was really so in a, in a way it was he was and he was also really central around the journal labor history which formed um in 1961 i think and that was really where all of these people who were writing about the new social slash labor history in australia were publishing um mm. and also yeah so he was not just he was really the the central point of the left i think and made that argument but also was really influential within the historical profession and within how just everybody kind of thought about Australian history, I suppose. You also, you did have people like Manning Clark who were quite 
um, who were quite critical of the approach, but I think you'd have to say that Ward was still very influential. Okay, and Manning Clark writes a uh, very um, glowing uh, forward to the version that I've got from McQueen's book. Yeah, that's right. So, look, let's get into it, right? Let, let, no, um, I think that's that's fascinating, and I really like the idea that book of arguments that emerge as critiques. But so the mm. book itself, in terms of its method, and method is one of the five things that McQueen critiques himself looking back on the book. So he, he says there are five weaknesses in the original version, the absence of culture, women and Aborigines, flawed social theory and method. So that absence of culture, feminist issues, engaging with Indigenous struggles, but also he challenges the, the actual method of the book. But the method is interesting mm. um, to look at. So it's broken into three elements. The first one, um, called part one, really is, again, an intellectual history where he's going through and tracing the ideas of Australia, late 1800s, early 1900s, looking mm. at what was written in popular and radical presses. And I think what's really mm. interesting here is you get a picture of Australia where the left presses were incredibly influential in Australian discourse. Is that the impression you get? You know, the yeah. people writing in uh, the Toxin and the Worker and the West Australian Worker, I'm mundling up the, the titles now, that they actually mm. are debating on a, on a national level, far more influential than the left presses we'd associate of our day. Is that, is that the impression that you get? Yeah, I think, you know, they were really influential, but I think it's also important to remember that Australia was one of the most literate societies in the world at the time and had one of the largest presses. So there were hundreds of newspapers circulating really within the big cities. Mm -hmm. So yeah, these are important. They are distributed widely. Um, things like the worker published by the Australian workers union in uh, Queensland branch would have been read really widely, but yeah, I don't think that they were, you know, they were part of the discussion, but certainly not all of it. Like mm -hmm. uh, it was a very, um, certainly within the left. And I think that's what's important here is to say that, that what McQueen's, doing here is really piecing together not just you know, Australian attitudes, but he's trying to piece together what is the far left or the or the radical left or the socialist mm. left's attitudes towards yeah. these questions. So that's, that's why he's that's drawing true. on that sort of literature rather than sort of um, implying that, that the worker speaks for mm. Australia. I don't think it, it does. Um, although, of course, they're very influential in getting certain policies, like the policies associated with the white Australia policy. Yeah on the books, um, but they're certainly not the most influential um, newspaper at the time. But here they, that's right. So that first section is really an attempt to piece together and pull apart all of these different, um, all of these different discourses, I guess, yeah. that, are, that are floating around, particularly in that late 19th century, uh, in that late 19th century moment um, of kind of uh, a sense of both British imperialism reaching its high point and also this sort of sense of the decline of the British race. Yeah. All of that, that's really, I think, closely connected to everything he talks about in that first section. Yeah, so, so I'm just going to finish summarising the presentation of the argument and then let's get back and dig into that. Sure. So then yeah, okay. part two is an attempt, I guess, to explain um, the, the material reasons why these ideas take shape. I associate the approach here very much as a kind of E.P. Thompson approach, but I don't really know E.P. Thompson well. But what I mean by that is attempting to look at the experience of convicts and migrants and diggers in a kind of living, um, literate, what were they saying, what were they thinking, and how does this relate to what their lives were like? Then talking about the nature of democratic, socialist, and union politics in Australia. And part three is just one chapter, Labour Rights, which is an attempt to explain how this, these, the ideas in the first section, the material conditions in the second, uh, explain mm. why the Labor Party was the Labor Party. So in that first section, I guess to summarise, the argument that Queen makes, McQueen makes, is that Australian nationalism and Australian radicalism were fundamentally from the beginning, for, in this period, racist approaches that were committed to race, both in terms of the white Australia policy and a broader imperialist white policy. That um, nas the nationalism and the radicalism was a defender of British empire. And if anything, 
the critique of the British Empire was that the British Empire was not assertive and aggressive enough, and interestingly, was not racist enough. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think I think so, and I think yeah. Again, it's important to to put that argument in into context. I guess in terms of what is the old left argument effectively. The Queen's arguing against Ward and others who say that effectively Australia is a victim of British Empire. And this is something um, I think that um, Brian Fitzpatrick puts in his book about Australia and um, and the um, British Empire. You know, that the Australians are, you know, and this is a long cavalcade of sort of examples that we could give of, um, you know, convict mistreatment through to um, the Gallipoli disaster, through to the fall of Singapore, you know, all of these sorts of ways in which Australia and Australians are victims of British mm-hmm. Empire. So his argument there is to say, no, actually, if we look at Australians then we, and we look at really the Australian radical press, which is really interesting because you wouldn't expect it from them, is that they say, as you say, that, you know, Australia is British and that that is a good thing. And that not only are we British, but we can be better than the British. Mm-hmm. And that we can be better British than the British themselves because we are on the, and this ties back to this sense of imperial decline, where in the late 19th century, there's a sense that Britain is, has reached a pinnacle of its power and is sort of falling away, falling apart at the seams, you know, there's signs of decay. While on the frontier, and the frontier is really important, I think we should talk about that concept. Um, on the frontier out in Australia, that's where the true British manhood, which is read as a radical ideal here, a mm. radical sense of the British, is British subject of the rights and um, a sort of string of cultural connections associated with that, that it's in Australia that we can make a proper British society, that we can make a real, authentic, white British society that's not um, going to decay in the same way that, uh, that that British society is. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there's one of the things that really strikes you, and I really like to pull this apart properly, one thing that really strikes you that's amazingly interesting is that this is a period of time where we associate with the, the imperial or colonial dominance of um, European nation states across the globe, right? This is the pre-First World pe- period where pretty much most of the world has been conquered or subjugated, colonised by various um, European powers with, mm. uh, with England being, you know, Great Britain, whatever it was called at the time, being the dominant one. But in the ideology in Australia, the, the thinking is that this is a moment of decline. And there is particular fear about the rise of Japan. And mm. what we see, I guess, is a couple of different things that run itself together as McQueen begins to pull apart racism in Australia. On one hand, he says, okay, yes, there is this economic element mm. where the radicals and the nationalists are trying to defend the conditions that. Um, workers have in Australia by limiting the size of the labour market, right? Through um, racist restrictions. There's that. But he says it can't just be reduced to that either. Rather that there's a whole kind of moral or civic code that about what it means to be a good Australian, a good Australian worker that is tied up in that idea. But it's also linked to a geopolitical understanding that the fate of uh, those conditions in Australia hedge on the ability of a, a white power to be able to exert itself, particularly through the Pacific, against what they see as the rising threat um, from Japan in terms of its... Uh, military and technical capacity and China in terms of its symbol of moral degradation. That's the kind of um, fleshing out of Australian racism that develops there, that there's an interrelationship between the defence of the material conditions of workers in Australia, the Mm. moral conditions of the nation and a geopolitical assertiveness across the Pacific. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. And I think, there's two things that I want to pull out of that. The first would be about, you mentioned E.P. Thompson before, and I think 
the idea of that McQueen doesn't say that he kind of read or engaged with E.P. Thompson at that time, I mean, particularly the making of the English Working Class, which was first published in 1963. Um, but it's certainly the elements of his work, elements of E.P. Thompson's thinking are there, particularly the concept of class kind of as a relationship, which he talks about quite a lot, mm. but also in this idea of the rejection of economic determinism. It's sort of like, yeah, well, we can say, of course, yes, you know, there's you know economic reasons why Australians um, would want to control the labour supply, and this is certainly the argument that's made to defend white Australia policy through the 40s and into the 60s, mm. uh, is an economic argument, effectively. Oh, we just need to control the labour supply. No, we need to make sure that um, for our good and for the good of the Asian countries, they keep their people and we keep our people, and you know, then way we can develop. But he's saying, well, no, there's obviously it's not enough. It's not enough to think that way. You know, what we need is to be able to understand where does, yeah, where does racism come from? That it's not simply economic, but that it is a that it is a cultural art, that it's cultural. Mm. And that it comes through these sorts of cultural practices. And he talks a lot about um, sex and sexuality well before, yeah. you know, like there's lots in this book which really kind of predates um, or anticipates sort of uh, concerns that we, um, that of historians and cultural theorists and others would, would are still talking about today. Yeah, totally. There's lots of one lines in this book. Yeah, where you're like, so oh my God, it's amazing. It's like so made so as part you of just the just summarized argument. a whole field yeah, that totally. didn't even exist. It's, it's, yeah. it's incredible. <laughs> but you're right, in the, in the afterword, you know, where he's yeah. reconceptualizing his argument, where mm. he says white Australia expressed a code of civic morality. Yeah. And that in general, white Australia was a doctrine of affirmative values, offering much mm. more than a negative rejection of other peoples. Um, that's right. So that's a really, that's an amazing uh, paragraph. We are dropping a bit ahead, but that is an amazing paragraph. I think the one you're reading. Uh, yeah, it, it, I, I, I'm going to be a bit pedantic as well in terms of his influences. He does also um, cite Perry Anderson and Tom yeah, Mead's yeah. work, which I think is somewhat in opposition to E.P. Thompson. But yes. I'm, not really familiar, I'm not really familiar with that debate, so I, I can't really... I listened to a really Deep. interesting podcast. Uh, the Jacobin um, magazine did a podcast mm. about uh, E.P. Thompson reading chapter by chapter. Uh, what's it called? I don't remember. We'll link it in the yeah. In the yeah, you mentioned anyway. it. In, you mentioned in the last one. Yeah. So yeah. So, Sorry. Yeah. So Re it's interesting. The other thing that he finds re that's really interesting about this too is the importance of war. Mm. Right. So yes. I, I guess part of what he's um, arguing. Uh, against is often you have an image of Australia, say, being draw dragged into the First World War, mm. um, that Australia is a nation of warriors, but simultaneously one that doesn't submit to military authority. And yep. what he argues for is that really uh, it was a militarist voice that mm. was the, a dominant voice in Australia at the time, mm. where, um, you know, many radicals ended up supporting... Um, say, the, the, the Boer War efforts by the empire, because, you know, even though they sympathised with, like, the Boers as, as being similar in some ways to Australians, um, mm. that, they, that they wanted the defence of the English empire. And even that anti-conscription arguments weren't anti-war arguments, but were rather worried that conscription would leave Australia undefended against the Japanese. You know, and yeah. that, and that, or that, what conscription would do would create a market for non-white labour to fill in in production. Um, you know, or that, um, say, milits the military f engagements of the British Empire they are, they opposed they opposed because it used Indian soldiers, and this somehow would undermine, um, you know, the the racial character of the empire. So that was pretty. Uh, those parts of the argument were pretty powerful, I thought. Yeah, definitely. The, all of that about. Than about militarism and about kind of what he calls sub-imperialism, which is a mm. term that I still like to use because I think it captures something well. I think it goes back to the concept of the frontier, mm -hmm. and particularly the way that... So he says that Ward uses the concept of the frontier. Where he says, you know, that it's on the frontier that we get this true Australian sentiment that develops, this egalitarian sentiment, which is born really of the rural working class, um, as Ward puts it. McQueen well, says we can use a different version of the frontier thesis, which is actually the one that Frederick Jackson Turner's argument uh, from America, who argues that um, it is on the frontier of American settlement that we get, um, that is the constant ex 
redemption of the American frontier, which is central to the American experience. Mm. And I think in Australia, he kind of says what there is is there's effectively like an, a Monroe Doctrine, which is what the Americans had when they considered uh, the Western Hemisphere effectively to be their playground. And they said that what the Monroe Doctrine effectively in, in, for America meant, well, we control this portion. This is our kind of sphere of influence mm. as it would be codified in the Cold War. Um, but, you know, Australia did the same in the Pacific. And that was kind of why, I guess, that sense of imperial decline was also sharpened by this sense of, well, the only places that are left to carve up are actually kind of these tiny little atolls just to the north of Australia. So yeah. there's this concern that Germany, we're fearful, you know, that we're isolated all the way down the bottom of the world, all these tiny little islands, yeah. you know, we don't really care about the inhabitants of those islands. That's not really the question. The question is, what is the significance, you know, yeah. of, of these as first Russian and uh, German and then Japanese, um, with, 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 the, with, the, with the Japanese being the, the real consolidation of the fear, right? But, it, right. but it is yeah. interesting. It is interesting that slippage, you know, if we wanted to be really quite precise, um, mm. that slippage about what is meant by white at this stage, mm. where, you know, that there's uh, that um, Germans and Russians, you know, do they fit into the definition of whiteness that's being used at the time? Um, mm. And I, I think there's, there, again, to go to the, to the 986 um afterward afterward a fuller mm. understanding of australian racism requires a knowledge of what people have meant by a race around the turn of the century a race referred to any cultural linguistic grouping hence there could be an irish race or a celtic race or the anglo-celtic race depending on the politics and location of the speaker eggleston wrote of the two most gifted races in europe anglo-saxon and celt this definition of race was connected to a belief that food transmitted elements from the soil into the blood, which thus contained a race's shared spiritual characteristic. As Gorta said, blood is, a qu blood is quite special juice. During the interwar period, thinking about race became more in line with contemporary scientific wisdom. The number of races with, with reduced with Caucasian, Negroid, Mongoloid, Australoid becoming the more frequent useful classifications. The rise of genetics further created further difficulties for theories of racism and employed blood as that employed blood as a mechanism of inheritance. Although popular rhetoric has largely remained unaffected by scientific advances. His campaign against Vietnamese migrants, Jeffrey Blaney was still writing about blood ties well after the entire existence of race as a meaningful category had been rejected by biologists. But I think what's quite interesting in that first part is in that late 19th, early 20th century period, you know, there, the, there's a, um, a fungibility to what is meant by white, I guess, with it being centered um, clearly on Anglo-Saxon, but then it's got fudgy um, sides. And I think that's one of the things that we will probably pick up in the further discussion Mm. is and has always been a problem for australia is who fits in that who fits in the category yeah you know, I, what are yeah. the borders of whiteness jews clearly not involved right so particularly no. you know in the in the 1890s and early 20th century jews are excluded from that category and are and often um seen as the pivotal enemy of uh white advancement yeah no there's some interesting um work being done at the moment um about kind of where, what is, what does, like, and this has been longer for a while, so but what does kind of whiteness look like uh, at different times? And you really need to get into like, what are the, what are people actually saying about it really closely? Yeah. And, you know, like there's this sense that whiteness in the 19, you know, once you stop the Pacific Island labor supply, which was really an essential argument of the labor movement and was successful largely, um, by the last few years of the first decade of the 20th century, the removal had largely been achieved. Then there starts to be an inflow of kind of Southern European or Italian or Maltese. Mm. Maltese is really interesting. The amount, because Malta is technically part of the British Empire and as such doesn't require a particular, that, you know, they can travel on imperial networks. Mm. So they don't have to pass the same sort of, or technically shouldn't have to pass the same sorts of requirements that people who are outside of the British Empire. Yeah. But to us, that's always a complicating factor for the imposition of aspects of the white Australia policy. But basically, there's this kind of argument which is being made in the 1920s, um, which is that well, white people, um, that, you know, well, the good the, what, Northern Europeans can be white, 
you know, mm. Germans, Swedes, whatever, they can all be white. But anybody who is, you know, from Southern Europe is definitely not white. Mm. They are definitely going to imperil there, definitely. But I think, yeah, it's really good the way that he talks about race in that, in that section that you read. And also, I think it ties into what does white Australia actually mean at the time? I think mm. it's really important to talk about that because we kind of, we think white Australia policy equals a series of immigration restriction acts, which I've already argued against in this mm. podcast in several but I think he captures it really well. I can just find exactly where he does that. He says, yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's a greater ideological ta- totality, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's the economic protectionism, a notion yeah. of a good society mm. and an imperial project. Yeah. All hinge on those things and all of those three things reinforce each other. Yeah. Yeah, Which is so, something that's real. Like, something that's really striking is how much the Australian radical tradition mm. was allied. You know, like was allied with British imperial politics. Mm. You know, in, in a way that the standard narrative, which is everyone was committed, committed to you know internationalism, the First World War happened and it was betrayal. You don't mm. even get the sense that there was a betrayal here, right? That no. it was always committed to that politics. Line, yeah, with from, exceptions being the uh, industrial workers of the world and the like. Yeah, yeah, and I've, I've written a bit about about that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the afterward on page two sixty nine in my volume, where he says, even as a racial program, white Australia policy cannot be confined to immigration. A complete account of Australian racism would range far beyond even this catalogue of seemingly unconnected issues. White Australia became much more than a program of restrictive immigration based on fears of economic competition or intermarriage. White Australia was the name that the more liberal elements of the bourgeoisie gave to the range of policies that were known as the United States as progressivism and in Britain as national efficiency. Um, Eggleston, politician and racial theorist, defended the White Australia policy in 1924 as desirable and necessary. The ideals and methods of life which we at present cherish are to be maintained. White Australia policy is indeed the formula which the Australian people have framed as the only solution to a number of very complex problems affect the security and welfare so yeah so really the white australian policy is what we call the australian settlement mm. it's really what what all of the different things that were made australia fit within this category of white australia so maintaining white australia meant maintaining everything about australia not just the immigration restriction but literally every so, part of the australian social and economic and political system so this then brings us to the rock that we always run into which is how do we explain ideology in relation to the material conditions that produce it, right? Like Mm. um, one of the promises of radical theory is that ideas just don't float up in the sky. Mm. Um, They don't just come from nowhere, but they are somehow products of the broader social totality and they reproduce that broader social totality. But explaining Mm. that mechanism has no one's, you know, it's very hard to do. Mm. The argument we get in McQueen in a new Britannia, and I'm going to summarise here, is that these ideas reflect a peculiar nature of where Australia fits in capitalism in the 19th and 20th centuries. And the argument is that the way that capitalism is developed in Australia in that period of time, as part of its broader circulation in the British Empire and in in the world system, means that a working class proper is not formed. This Mm. is in the 970 version of the argument. Mm. But rather um, because of the prevalence, the ability to access land and the ability Mm. to access gold, that you never have the creation of a proletariat that um, thinks, that understands that its condition can only be solved by overcoming capitalism. Rather, it's a lived experience that people have that they think that they believe their problems can be solved within capitalism. And this is what produces these ideas. Mm. You know, so it's effect and it's effectively the idea that the Australian, the working people of the 19th and early 20th century were a petty bourgeois, petty bourgeoisie. And that's mm. why these ideas were produced. And that socialism, as it was understood at that time, was nothing more than the state support for particular elements of capitalism Mm. um, and a breaking of monopoly in land and finance. And that's due to that combination uh, of golden land 
that there's a way out of the proletarian condition. And even though McQueen will reject this argument in his later afterward, that's a really fucking interesting argument. It really is, yeah. And I think it kind of makes sense if you view, like as McQueen critiques, if you view kind of capitalism as kind of unchanging in a way. And I think he um, he notes, you know, that there is this, um, that yeah, that, that these ideas kind of develop over time. But he kind of says that um, that cap doesn't seem to really have an argument about capitalism in that no more really than kind of that there's this thing called white capitalism, which is growing at the time, and that you know that Australian working class never achieves really proletarian consciousness, which I think is interesting. He's drawing there on on Lukash, um, yeah, like in, in in terms of this kind of idea of false or mixed consciousness, you mm. know. So where does like there's really no argument there as to what true consciousness would look like, or why did other countries develop a true proletarian consciousness? Mm. What kind of Australia didn't? And I mean, I think it's interesting. Yeah, and I think it, it is interesting. And I think you know that's part of. I guess it goes back to this question: What's the, the politics of ideas? Is really, and that's critique he makes in the afterward where he says this is all very true from the perspective of a politics of ideas. Mm. Um, so anyways, this is an intellectual history of Australian laborism rather than a material history of how do these ideas change over time. I think he's totally on the mark if we were considered this to be sort of a Skinner, Quinton Skinner sort of contextualist intellectual history. But I guess he doesn't, he didn't want it just to be that. I mean, he was influenced by Gramsci, influenced by all these people to sort of think about these things in very cultural terms. But I think in so doing, he then is left unsatisfied with his own conclusions. Mm. Yeah, totally. And I think we'll get to that in a moment, but just to, to stick to the 1970s version. And yeah. part of the argument, therefore, is because you get this mm. this working class that this working class that is not a proletariat mm. um, that that is formed in this period. Mm. The politics that they produce are a politics that are not about the abolition of class conditions or mm. um, the destruction of capitalism, but are, are ones framed within the general interest that you know it's a belief that um basically capitalism can be organized that the, the state can take a more active role in uh capitalism to mm. fix its problems and ensure the greater good of the entire community and that this was something that labor politicians like really felt from the from the get-go there's two things that really <laughs> spring to mind here is that one as you know something we've been dealing with lately is the kind of historical revisionism about um the nature of the the chifley government and things like that mm. so this is actually an argument that state intervention into into australian capitalism is actually much older than chifley much older than keynes mm. and that that's been part of the necessary politics and McQueen makes the arguments well that's it was needed to develop capitalism in a country in Australia with a population dispersal like it had, you know, that you needed state railways, right? You always needed this level of, of state support. Yep. And also that um, we can see here continuities to, to today where the laborist politics of today are still about saving capitalism for the benefit of all. Yeah, no, I think he's, there's, there's definitely a lot of strength in that, in that argument. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things to think about is kind of what is the terminology that really gets used is that rarely do they actually talk about capitalism, rarely do the Australian radicals of this era really talk about capitalism, mm. is that they use other terms, like they use, they talk about, you know, um, money power, squatocracy, yeah, they talk yeah. about money power, they talk about fat man, was like, yeah. you know, was, was, a, was a way of, of talking about people who would be considered as capitalists, but effectively like labor presented itself in the 1890s when it comes into an, into its strengths really in the in the first two decades of the 20th century yeah. presents itself as an authentic representation of what it really means to be an australian mm. while capital is this kind of you know jewish international financial system you know like they, they don't really talk about capitalism explicitly but they talk that there's this anti-australian kind of rich class and the australian every man class effectively yeah just everyone yeah that and it's a real sort of a real kind of populist politics that emerges and i think he's got to be on on the money to a, to an extent that this is all 
um, the result of the need of Australian capitalism to develop at that time, yeah, that it has a very efficiently state development ethos. Mm. And that it was important to have the working class on side for that. But as he then puts it in the afterward, of course, you know, it's really insufficient to say that, you know, that labor kind of emerges spontaneously or organically in the 1890s out of the, you know, the wishes of monopoly capital, monopolizing capitalism. Mm. But I think it's an interesting argument. And I think, you know, um, it does answer a lot of important questions. Yeah. So, so j- just to, to round that round. So the, mm. the, the end of the 1970s version is, you know, um, because of the material conditions, which produces a particular notion of democracy, a particular notion of socialism, which is about the common good of the capitalist state, you then produce this Labour Party that reflects those ideas. Its origins are never socialist. It can yeah. never be socialist, right? And at yeah. the same time, there's also an argument that we are beginning to see the development of a proletarian class, right? Which, mm. and I think that's the end of the 1970s version, the last line. Uh, just wait there because it is it is key. So, so the last few lines, the unionists and others who found it necessary to oppose the Labour Party are indicative of a different class of a proletariat. It is this class which can have no solution to problems other than the establishment, to its problems other than the establishment of a communist society. So the book in the 1970s version basically says that a new class formation is developing, right? Yeah. That will be different from, from these politics. The 986 afterward makes two critiques then and you've mentioned one already the first is to basically go well i didn't really understand the different forms that capitalism took at the time and that Mm. really the period i'm talking about is the development of monopolizing capitalism and Mm. really the kind of politics i'm looking back there can't be explained uh simply by it's the petty bourgeois nature of um, people at the time but rather it was limited attempts of workers and their organizations in that context to try to address the challenges mm. mixed with a need arose for what he calls a mass market state like mm. a state that begins to deal far more with i guess what we'd call now social reproduction or biopower or the biopolitical you know in language very different from a queen's language the state was needed to manage these affairs also with that final idea that mm. the Labour Party of the 1970s and 80s is not the Labour Party of the 1890s, with the great line, it is one thing to say that the ALP has never been socialist, and another to explain why it has not been so at each period in its existence. So mm. going back to what you said, rather than that original, um, there's an original sin that marks it forever, but rather there's different conditions, but different conditions produce, I guess, some form of continuity. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's a convincing argument in and of kind of how we see the politics of whiteness continue to replicate itself within the labor parties. It's, it's, it's quite easy to draw as I have to draw kind of those sorts of, really clear connections between, well, what are they saying in the 1890s? What are they saying kind of now? Mm. And we can say, yeah, well, there's a lot of continuity here. You know, obviously they're still interested in, in maintaining, you know, that the Australian labor supply has been quite small, mm. that they are still interested in um, maintaining a sort of, what you would call if we were to read white Australia in the broad terms that McQueen argues for as really the kind of social conditions of what made Australia quite working man's paradise in the early 20th century. And you know, then that, that, that there are elements of that, but as he says in the 1960s and the 1970s, labor, labor is transformed really from one party into a very different party. Yeah. Like that party that exists up until really the fall of Arthur Caldwell um, in the late 1960s, that's mm. very, the party's almost kind of remade. Yeah, my, my brain is fizzing. There's a number of really important points that um, that he makes here. So, you know, one is th- that afterward really has a good emphasis on um, the discon- discontinuities in how capitalism unfolds. It's not just a train going through a desert, right? Yep. And he really links the 1960s crisis with the destruction of one laborism and the rise of then a technocratic laborism under Whitlam. Now, as mm-hmm. far as I understand it, that term technocratic laborism might be a reference to an article Bruce McFarlane has written with someone else who I've suddenly forgotten their name in the, mm. I think maybe in the first of those books on Australian political economy that mm. Ted Wheelwright edited. So there's a, this 
understanding of this uh, difference and this discontinuity there. Another mm. thing that we didn't touch on that I think is really interesting is that um, also the specific Australian experience we talked about with, you know, the development of kind of bourgeois right in Australia never involved a civil war. Yeah. You know, that, that there was never, that there was a, that there was a lack of struggle, right? There was mm. a lack of conflict that is expressed here. Now, I want to move in, I guess, to evaluate what we think of this argument. That's all right with you, John. And, um, yeah, no, we're getting, we're getting on. We are getting on. And one of the, the bits that makes me really think, you know, as you know, for me, the version of um, a notion of whiteness or white privilege that I'm the most influenced by is that American one. And mm. what's really interesting about that is that argument says is in the colonization of the Americas so around about 1600s, there are things like Bacon's Rebellion. I'm not entirely sure where that is, where you have like a multiracial um, coalition of the poor that mm. threaten colonial interests. Therefore, whiteness is developed as a layering of privilege within a geographical space that creates a difference between populations to manage it because of conflict. It's interesting mm. that McQueen's argument is in some ways the reverse of that, that one of the things that the white Australia policy rests on um, and what Australia as a notion rests on is not the fear of conflict, but the absence of conflict. That what it draws its sucker mm. from is not scarcity, but potential abundance. So it's locating um, an origin point for racism in Australia that is radically different than the narrative that is used to explain the development of whiteness in the United States. Yeah, no, that's that's right. It is. I think it's interesting how this plays out in different settler societies. I do think that there is that whiteness when it's kind of imported to Australia, like there obviously is at a bit of a later date. It's you know much later than the early colonization of the Americas, and I think there is a sense in which there's always conflict from the get-go with indigenous peoples, obviously. Mm. And I think that really frames what the whiteness that kind of emerges is very much a whiteness based on property, which we'll be yeah. getting back to in book three in particular, but a sense of whiteness based on, which you can see in the ownership of the land. And then obviously in the ownership of kind of islands around um, Australia's kind of sub-imperialism is that this is a whiteness that's based on I, that, that's basically, yes, the avoidance of conflict in, in Australia because it's about controlling the mm. lay of sweat, it's about maintaining a white country, whatever that means, whether that is implicitly read as racial terms or in these kind of broader socio-political terms, which I don't think can really be divorced from race anyway. But then when you take it beyond that, obviously the, the, there's always a reverse to that because you can't just have you know, the conflict-free Australia without a conflictive world. A threatening, dangerous world yeah. that Australia sits in, due to its geographic position, um, and due to the nature of colonial power in the area. Um, yeah, that it is. I think always about whiteness as property, whiteness as as ownership of that land, and that I guess is the way. If you want to talk about the wages of whiteness, then, and I think it's important that McQueen is constantly connecting labourism to this politics of smallholderism. Yeah, that's which I really think is key. also really important in the American context um, to kind of how did, you know, this slightly tangential, but how did um, Abraham Lincoln mobilize an anti-slavery coalition to fight the Civil War in America? Well, he did that through effectively saying um, that, you know, what we need to do is open up Indian land mm. um, to white smallholders. And, and that you, was kind of an argument that slavery was controlling, was that, that slave power was controlling the land and um, we could, and by, you know, unfairly keeping white America in its bounds, mm. um, you know, it was weakening. So I think that it's and that's something Patty, well. when we talk, when we spoke to Patty, that's something Patty brought up as well. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it's, it is one of the things that's really interesting about this book is like talking about how much radical visions in Australia were visions of the independent, like the, the promise of Australia was the independent, a pre-capitalist independence based on small land holding was possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 
Um, is you know, Marx, you know, they they talk about Wakefield here. You know, Marx in Capital talks about the mm. unfortunate Mr. Wakefield, and you know, because Wakefield had this problem of how could you form a proletariat where people keep on fucking off to the to to become farmers, <laughs> or and, gold miners. Yeah, or gold miners, and and then you know, McQueen's interest in the kind of the politics it produces. I wonder how much that continues to Australian society today. That until at least the 2013 slowdown in wages, and definitely the current recession that mm. people have felt that there's a that there's enough slack in capitalism in Australia that you can get you can get independence outside of the wage right like the, the, yeah. the dream of becoming a small business person is you know is the contemporary equivalent of the dream of i can get a little bit of land right and yeah. that's on the right and right and in the left and in the absence of a radical project that is promising concretely a, a totally different kind of society that's the best on offer, right? Mm. You know, and that there was a period of time in Australia where what McQueen is saying that that was actually really possible. That, you know, people could, would come to Australia from the UK. First of all, they would make much better wages than they'd make mm. there. And then they'd be able to access land. And it, like even people who are shearers are farming some of the time and shearing the rest of the time. That, that, that there was a pot like the positive content to the horrible things like a white Australia policy was the promise of independence to those mm. who were within those boundaries, better wages and independence um, while within the broader capitalist totality. Yeah. I think you can see elements of that kind of in the, um, in the way that laborism kind of develops in um, kind of influence with a kind of a Catholic tradition as well, which sort of says, you know, that it's when men, when a man owns his own property, then he is, you know, closer to God. Effectively. Yeah, Bob Santa Maria's desire to destruct, oh, absolutely. To destruct a, pres a peasanthood here. So yeah, the, but I, well, I, think, I think it also flows into the, the kind of you know, having a decent job. So yeah. I think it flows into laborism's infatuation with the need for everyone to be employed. It's a working person's party. Yeah. And I think that that is then connected to property ownership, particularly in the post-war period where you yeah. get the ideal of the, um, the small farmer is replaced for everyone but uh, Santa Maria and a few others by the suburban yeah. expansion and by kind of, you know, well, you can't own a farm, you can own your own house, you can own your holding, you can own this. And this becomes yeah. kind of the latter day um, approximation of the kind of the Bushman mythology yeah, I, I in a very real sense. I think, I think what's crucial, yeah, I think that's the point that it's a very real sense, right? I think what, mm. what's, what's crucial about it, this is not to say, and these people are trapped in an illusion. No, right? that there is a, a very enjoyable content. one if it is. And, and, then, and then what um, becomes the point is like land prices, interest rates, things like this, mm. right? And it's, it's one of those things that's, uh, I think, you know, to jump forward to the present, one of the challenges that comrades always wrestle with is when we talk about housing, is mm. how many people that are wage workers, including blue collar wage workers, own an investment property? Mm. <laughs> you know, like that, uh, that home ownership is particularly high in Australia as mm. well. And it's a real substantial challenge. We should finish up soon, John. A thing, yes, that we talk, we have, a thing that we haven't talked about is just how well written this book is. Oh, yeah. And how, what a joy it is to read. And it's, 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 we don't get stuff like this. No, there's not a lot of stuff like this anymore. It's currently. No. I mean, um, when, whenever you read it, I think how much I am a, you know, a Marxist McQueenist in sort of my approach to history. And yeah. sort of hopefully, I hope at least my writing style, though, though, though um, Humphreys, I don't think I could parallel that. You know, there's, like some, his, there's some really funny jokes. Like there's uh, yeah. a line, <laughs> where, I think there's a line where he's alluding to, I think, um, homosexuality amongst the Kelly gang. Which yeah. is done like in such like you know in um like in a really funny way jokes about masturbation yeah. you know there's like it's the other thing that I love about this book too which I haven't mentioned is that it brings to life an entire world right yeah you know even though McQueen is clear that he's drawing on already existing literature and this is an act of reinterpretation you find mm. references to all these different writers and characters the importance of the piano as a status symbol yeah. you know there's a reference to an anarchist novel how much like people were having political debates by writing novels yeah you know, is really really interesting and William Lane, like talking about you know William Lane writes novels someone and then even like at the end in a broader scale that the, there were two different versions um, 
of what socialism could look like, either state control or, um, dem or systems of communes. And it's mm. argued out really between Edward Bellamy's Looking Backwards and William Morris's News from Nowhere. So they're UK writers. But yeah, the, the importance of fiction to this too. So it is like, it's hard to get your hands on. It's unbelievable that this is out of print, but it is a joy to read. And I feel a really good starting point to starting to understand attempts to come to grips with the nature of race in Australia and its relation to its material conditions. Yeah, definitely. And I think it all came from an honest thesis. So, you know, everyone who's out there writing an honest thesis or has written an honest thesis and sitting around yeah. doing nothing, think it could become, it could be the new, could be the new, new Britannia. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, definitely. There, I, it, I, it is interesting though that we're like, and I think, um, about pissing in McQueen's pockets too much that I don't know if much academic work is done on McQueen. Oh uh, yeah, like I said, there the, is. Frank Bongiorno has done a little bit, a little bit of stuff, but no, there's never been, I don't think, you know, a proper kind of, um, uh, like a biography would be interesting. Yeah. And, and, project I, that's what, and even for this book, like a proper sco definitive yeah. scholarly edition, the yeah. pictures in this, the, in the version I've got, there's, um, uh, is that the Keith like, Lobby? Yeah, Keith Lobby, Lobby ones. ones. They're fantastic. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. they're amazing too. So look, it's how we. There's a lot of copies in libraries. I would definitely. Yeah. Uh, and so what we said originally, you know, obviously we're on Twitter. I'm at with Sober Senses. John, you're at John Pacini. We would like people to get involved with this discussion. So if you've listened to the show and you've got questions or arguments or things like that, get in contact with us. Um, if you want to get on the show and make an argument against us, get in contact and we'll organize an episode with you. Mm. Um, I don't really have much more to say. John, you got more to say? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think we, we've covered it all pretty well. I'm sure we'll be able to track back over. Yeah, over as, it as, as soon as it finishes, I suddenly think of yeah. the definitive point, right? Like, we've got a, but it's good that we're kind of finishing kind of in the 1960s in a way and in that kind of that, that moment, um, because I think that's where we will pick up next yeah, time with Gus and Hajj, right so this yeah, book right. comes out in 19 well it's interesting right like, this book comes out in 1970s um mm. I guess at the period of time where the white Australia policy is falling apart the 1986 mm. um afterward which we've really dwelled a lot on here makes a reference to Blaney's mm. speech about Vietnamese migration is that right 1984 I want to say yeah, yeah so it's a very um that was yeah incredibly controversial and so um, maybe Sorry, we, we, we will need to go back to that because that's, I think, really important um, in terms of kind of, of of Hodge's argument. Yeah, the next shift, right? Yeah, where how does racism, was this kind of argument that racism, you know, sort of um, almost kind of, we, there's, there's, a, there's an agreement on multiculturalism in the 70s mm. that kind of falls apart with, um, with, um, with, with, with Blaney, but I think, you know, Hodge's argument would be that, that, that this is oldest modes of racial rule. And we'll get back to that. Well, cool. so we're preempting ourselves. Yeah, I think it was really good. I think it was really good, John. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Hopefully, um, I hope listeners have enjoyed this. Get in contact with us soon. You are listening Thanks, to Living the Dream. I am probably going to finish with a track that tries to um, capture the ambiguities of Australian radicalism. So maybe some Red Gum because I think Same. that is really in the tradition. Or there's this song that um, there's this song that I like intellectually disagree with but it gets me emotionally you know like the same way when you watch abc kids where they've got like the kids version of them singing we are one we are many yeah yeah right so, which has an indigenous language at the beginning like intellectually i know that's terrible hmm. emotionally, that's kids like, are so cute. emotionally that song gets me all but also yeah. it's it's a positive version of australian nationalism right like yes you know this is how I, this yep. how ideology works um but i'll try to put a, a song that grab so it, uh, at the end, it kind of grabs those ambiguities, maybe some Red Gun or some Fred Smith or something like that. Sounds great. All right, John, you look after yourself. Thanks a lot. All right, thanks everyone for listening. Bye bye.
Drop it. 